Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Please join me in welcoming Professor Steve Weidenkopf. So tonight we're going to talk about the baptism of Clovis, and it's actually interesting. It's one of the most interesting and probably most one of the most famous conversions in the entire history of the church in Western civilization, um, and it happens at the end of the fifth century. So for us to understand why this particular individual's baptism and conversion was so important to the history of the church and the history of Western civilization, we kind of have to obviously understand what was going on before we get to the end of the fifth century, and understand that conversion and that baptism in a better sense of context uh, so it makes it help us to understand the importance of it even more. So as we hope I have a little slide presentation as we go along here. So the period of time leading up to the fifth century, we go back to the fourth century, let's look at what's happening there. So at the beginning of the fourth century, we have one of the greatest persecutions in the history of the church. This is called in history the Great Persecution. It lasts for two years from 303 to 305 in the very beginning of the fourth century. And in that persecution, it was undertaken during, during the reign of the emperor Diocletian. And Diocletian is the Roman emperor who's known for many things, not only the great persecution, but also he's the individual who separates, who divides administratively the Roman Empire into an east and a west. Right? And that's exceptionally important for the conversation, the topic we're talking about tonight, as well as just for our own day and age. Now, not only does, so he divides this empire here into half, the eastern part over here, you know, mostly with Greece and modern-day Turkey, the Holy Land, Egypt. And then here in the western part of the world, you have the Western Roman Empire, France, modern-day France, Spain, Africa, uh, and parts of Britain that, Roman, that Rome controlled. Not only did he divide the empire into two different halves, but Diocletian also divided those two halves of the empire into smaller regional jurisdictions. And those regional jurisdictions, he called, he named them after himself, he called them dioceses. So you ever wonder where we get that, that name, you know, the Diocese of Arlington or the Archdiocese of Washington, where does that come from? Where did the church take that? It comes here from the Emperor, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, right? So what's going to end up happening, as we'll see tonight and then next week as well, that when the Western Roman Empire here collapses at the end of the 5th century, we'll talk about that tonight, when that happens, then the authority, the governing authority that remains in the West is the church. Right, principally the, the Pope in Rome, but then also the bishops in these major towns, in these major cities, in these dioceses in the West. And so the church then continues to utilize that organizational structure throughout the rest of her history. All right, so we go from the great persecution in the early part of the fourth century to what happens next, briefly in time here as we're running through this, is the conversion of Constantine the emperor, right? So Constantine actually has a miraculous vision. He takes his legions from Britain, he marches through Gaul, and while he's going through Gaul on the way down to Rome to fight a battle against the rival claimant to the throne, a man by the name of Maxinius, they fight, they meet at this battle called the Battle of Milvian Bridge in October of 312. And Constantine wins that battle, his forces were outnumbered, 
Uh, it looked like he, you know, militarily speaking, there's no reason why he should have won that battle, but he did. And he attributed the victory that he achieved at the Battle of Novian Bridge to the intercession of the Christian God. He himself wasn't Christian, but as he was marching his armies through France, he saw a sign, a cross in the sky, and around the cross was this Latin phrase, in hoc signo vinces, or in this sign, conquer. And so he took that Christian symbol, he took the Cairo, actually, the Greek monogram for Christ, and he had that painted on his soldiers' shields. So when they marched into battle against Maxentius, they won overwhelmingly, you know, again, against overwhelming odds. He attributed that victory to the Christian God. So when he gets into Rome, he starts to pass legislation favorable to the church. All right, he, first of all, he begins to take instruction as a catechumen in the church uh, to become a Christian. So here you have the Roman emperor who previously, several, for several centuries, had been persecuting the Catholic church. Now you have the head of that empire taking instruction to become a Christian. It was a, it's a significant event right, in the life of the church and the life of Europe. He doesn't actually become baptized. He doesn't receive baptism until his deathbed. And then when he is baptized, he's baptized by an Arian heretic, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so the point of the moral is don't put off baptism to your deathbed because then you might get baptized by a heretic, right? So he's baptized on his deathbed. But before that, he again passes legislation favorable to the church. So he begins to actually give territory to the church. For example, in Rome, he gives the Lateran Palace to the Pope. So that becomes the cathedral seat of the Bishop of Rome, right? St. John Lateran eventually becomes. The Lateran Palace actually technically wasn't his territory. It wasn't his property. It was his wife's. Uh, and so he gave that to the church. One would assume he asked her permission before he gave that, but you never know. Um, so he did that. He also outlawed certain customs that were you know, immoral and not in keeping with church teaching, obviously. And so just things very favorable. One thing he did very specifically is that with, so at this point, he's just the emperor in the West. He's the Western Roman emperor. The Eastern Empire had another emperor, a man by the name of Licinius. The two of them meet together in Milan in the year 313, and they pass an edict of toleration, which legalizes the Christian faith. All right, so now we have this, we move from the great persecution to, you know, a decade later, the, the Catholic Church is now legalized, recognized as an entity throughout the Roman Empire. It undoes this law that had been on the books since the time of Nero in the first century, that it was illegal for a Roman to be a Christian. Right, that's now done. It's gotten done away with. So now Christian, the Christian faith, the Catholic faith is legalized. Right? So as a result of this and, and Constantine taking um, instruction in the faith, we have a lot of people now coming into the church, right? a lot of converts coming, a lot of convert, pagan Romans coming into the church. And some are coming in because they're very faithful, because they've, they've had a, a you know, conversion experience, a faith experience. They, they have a deep love for God and for the church, and so they're growing in faith and with grace. But some people are coming into the church for less than pious reasons, right? They're coming in because, you know, the imperial court favors this, this new religion of the Christians. And I want to advance, you know, in society and in court. So I'm going to, you know, go into the church. So you get people that are there for less than pious reasons. And then they begin to ask a lot of questions. And so what we have at this early stage in the fourth century here is the church wrestling with the great theological controversy of, of trying to explain its teachings and its faith to this new group of, of, of Roman converts. And so the question really begins to be asked, who is Jesus? And how do we explain who Jesus is, right, in terms of his relationship to God the Father and God the Son? What is this trinity? How is it that Jesus can be both true God and true man? And so there's, one, there's a lot of questions about that, a lot of people trying to answer those questions. One individual who tries to answer that question, now here's the Cairo from Constantine that he put on the shield of his soldiers, the battle. So we have this, who is Jesus, this major question. One person who tries to answer this question is a North African priest whose name is Arius. 
And Arius gives his name to this heresy that arises now in the fourth century called Arianism. And so Arius um, is a dynamic personality. He's a master propagandist, and he begins to teach that Jesus is not co-eternal with God the Father. That Jesus, rather, is a creature. He's created by God at, a, at some moment in time. This is what he wrote. He said, God has not always been Father. There was a moment when he was alone and was not yet Father. Later he became so. The Son is not from eternity. He said this also about Jesus. The Son who is tempted, st suffers, and dies, however exalted he may be, is not to be equal to the immutable Father. All right, so in essence, Arius is saying Jesus is a creature. He's the, you know, the first creature of God, one could say, the most perfect creature of God, but a creature nonetheless not co-eternal with God, right? not consubstantial, as would be later written in the Nicene Creed, as we'll talk about. He also said the Holy Spirit is a creature as well, the second most perfect creature of God, but a creature nonetheless. Right? So Arius' teachings become very, very popular, and they begin to spread, so the church has to address this, and they do so by calling an ecumenical council. Right. Constantine really is the one who calls this council. The Pope approves the calling of the council, though, sends a representative to be there at the council and to represent him. But Constantine was upset because he saw the Catholic Church as a vehicle through which he could bring unity to the Roman Empire. Right. Kind of put an end to all this squabbling and, dis and discussion and division. The Church would unite the Empire. And so now when he sees this vehicle, which he hoped would be this organ of unity, is now this instrument of disunity with everybody talking and, and people arguing about who Jesus is, he decides, all right, we have to solve this, and he calls a, a uh, council where he invites all the bishops of the Catholic Church to meet in the city of Nicaea to discuss Arius' teachings. And so they come, they meet here in 325. Arius is allowed to present his teachings, and his teachings are overwhelmingly condemned. Right? There's 320 bishops uh, present at the Council of Nicaea. They take a vote. 318 vote to condemn Arius' teachings, and two vote to support him. Right? So it's overwhelmingly large support against Arius' teachings and in favor of the apostolic teaching that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father, right? Co-eternal. He is God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's not just a creature of God, not a creature at all of God, right? So Arius, so this happens in Nicaea. The church overwhelmingly condemns Arianism, but unfortunately there are several bishops, Eastern bishops at the council who are upset with the use of the word consubstantial. They said it wasn't in scripture, so therefore it shouldn't have been a, a word used in the creed that was created at the council. So they then hatch a plot, primarily under the leadership of this bishop named Eusebius of Nicomedia. They hatch, hatch a plot to rehabilitate Arius with Constantine and to get rid of the bishops who were in favor of the Nicene Creed. And so they go through through the next the rest of the fourth century trying to get rid of these bishops. And ultimately, they're able to convince Constant, one of Constantine's son, the one who succeeds to him ultimately, a man by the name of Constantius II, to persecute the Orthodox, not only in the East, but also in the West. So much so that Constantius even goes to the West and kidnaps the Pope, Pope Liberius this is, kidnaps the Pope, and then puts him into hiding and ultimately forces him to sign a, a kind of a semi-Aryan type of creed. Right? So it's a really difficult time in the life of the church. One individual in particular who is supporting the Nicene faith throughout this period of time is St. Athanasius, the defender of orthodoxy. Right? A great bishop who was bishop of the city of Alexandria for 45 years. Of those 45 years, he spent 20 in exile right? because he was exiled for his orthodox faith five different times 
he spent almost half of his episcopacy was spent outside being in exile. And he was sent, he was exiled to Rome, to the Egyptian desert. He spent time in many different locations outside of his diocese. Now, Arianism was so per pervasive and it became such a huge obstacle and a huge issue in the church's life that the church father Gregory of Nyssa would write during the fourth century. This became such a big problem, he wrote this. He says, whenever you went to the money changer, to the butcher shop, or to the thermal baths, people asked you whether the father is greater than the son, or whether the son proceeded from nothing. Right, so you can see the kind of the, the irritation in this letter, right? Does it, you, I could just go to the store, I'm going to Giant, people are asking me, what do you think about Jesus? Is he, is he God, is he not? You know? I mean, the church ruled on this, what is, why can't we understand that? Later on in the fifth century, St. Jerome would bemoan Looking back on this period of time, how the church was just full of this issue, St. Jerome would write, The whole world groaned when, to its astonishment, it discovered that it was Arian. The little ship of the apostles was in peril. So the Arian crisis, the church was actively in the Arian crisis for 50 years of the 4th century, but the impact and the effects of Arianism lasted for several centuries in the church's life. And I kind of go back in time and tell you all this and set the stage for what's happening here at the end of the 5th century when we talk about Clovis. Because ultimately what will happen, we'll do a little preview, ultimately what will happen is that most of the major German tribes in the West are going to embrace Arianism. And so most of Western Europe, by the time you get to the 5th century, is full of Arian Christians. And so one thing happens significantly, the topic of our, of our talk, the baptism of Clovis, that changes that. Right, so we need to know, though, how that happens, and so that's why we're, we're beginning with this. All right, so now we move into the 5th century from this 4th century. The church, you know, seemingly is persecuted, rather, in the beginning of the 4th century. There's legalization. Things seem to be going well, but now this huge heresy attacks the church. So things are not looking so good as we move into the 5th century. Well, now Western Europe is plagued with a bunch of political problems and issues as we move into the 5th century, and one of those significant issues is it happens in the early part of the 5th century, and this is Alaric's sack of the city of Rome in the year 410. Now, Alaric was technically and ethnically a Goth, but he was by birth a Roman. And what I mean by that is, we'll talk about the Goths in more detail in a minute, but Alaric was a member of this German tribe who had been welcomed into the confines of the Roman Empire in exchange for military service. And, and life, during his time, this had happened several decades before his lifetime. So for several decades, his peoples had really been within the confines of the empire and really were Roman at heart, ethnically German, but Roman at heart. So what happens is that because the Goths had been asked to provide military service for the empire, they do, and many of these German tribes, this is what happens at the time, as we'll talk about in more detail later, they, they give military service for Rome, and then they decide after a while, since they're giving their lives and they're performing this service for Rome, they want to be recognized as not just German militia, but as regular Roman army soldiers. Right? Alaric himself wants to be given the title of Magister Militum, right? or Master of Soldiers, which is a, was a title that was given to two or three men in the Roman Empire of, you know, who were major generals, we would call them today. He asked the emperor to grant him this title. The emperor said, no, I'm not going to give this title to just a, a measly German. Right? So Alaric, obviously, upset. What does he do? He gathers his army of 30,000 men, and he marches them down to Rome. And he sacks the city. Gets into the city. His the city is sacked for three days. There's murder and rampage and destruction all throughout the city, except all the churches in the city are preserved. No clergy member, no priest, deacon, or religious was attacked or hurt at all during the siege because Alaric had given strict orders to his troops not to do so. 
don't destroy a church, don't attack a member of the clergy or a religious. Right? So remember, Alaric is German, so it was a sack of the city, but it was an orderly sack of the city. <laughs> I can say that I'm German, right? So, right? <laughs> now, Rome, this is a huge, I'm not going any further. So Rome had, you know, uh, had not been sacked for over 800 years. So this was a significant event, right? Think about this. I mean, here's Rome, right? This major majestic city of this large empire, right? This huge civilization. And here you have this army of Germans, you know, ethnic Germans, who come, Roman auxiliary troops, come and sack the entire city. If you're a Roman living during this period of time, that's a, a significant issue. It's almost akin, or would be akin, to like if, if we were alive in the 19th century and the British, when they burned Washington, D.C., right? How, how shocking that would be, you know, even more so now if some, some major army was to do that to our, our capital city, right? So this is a huge event. So many people, though, began to take, you know, began to question the, the empire's affiliation with the church as a result of the sack of Alaric. They began to say, you know, hey, when we were pagan, the pagan gods protected the city. The city hadn't been sacked for 800 years. So when we were pagan, the, those gods protected the city. Where was the Christian god during the sack? Maybe we shouldn't be Christian anymore, right? And so people began to blame the church and blame the faith for Alaric's sack. So great consternation throughout the empire. And the person who addresses this question as to, is the church to blame, See, even back in the 5th century, the church was being blamed for everything, right? Does it happen today? Absolutely, right? No, right? So the person who, though, who then takes this question on and answers it, you know, definitively and destroys this notion that the church is to blame for Alaric's sack is St. Augustine. Right? St. Augustine writes this great work, The City of God, and in it, he, he tells the tale of these two different cities. He gives the history of two cities, which not only is, is a way of understanding temporal history, but also even just understanding our own individual lives. Augustine talks about how there's a city of God and a city of man. And the city of God is founded upon love of God and of selflessness, of giving of ourselves to others. The city of man is founded upon greed, ambition, selfishness, self-love. Right? And so not, the world struggles in these two cities, as well as we could even apply that spiritually to ourselves. Right? We, we both have are sometimes in the city of God and sometimes in the city of man, hopefully more in the city of God than the city of man. Right? Well, we struggle with that. And that's why we need God's grace. And we need to remain active in our faith life and, and participants in the sacraments. But so St. Augustine writes this defense of the faith, and he says, you know, the faith is not to blame for Alaric's sack. Rather, the Christian faith is the key to understanding the history of the world. He says that Christ is the center of all human history. His incarnation is the central act of human history. And so human history cannot be understood apart from Christ and apart from the Catholic faith. He goes on and he says that basically the meaning of history lies not in the flux of outward events, but in the hidden drama of sin and redemption. So history is this drama that God has that we participate in between sin and redemption. Right? It's, it's not the faith's fault that Rome fell. There's other things at work that brought the sack of the city. And we need to look at that in this context and in, in this light. Right? So St. Augustine definitively answers that question at the time and for us as well. Now, as we move forward here in the 5th century, we kind of touched on this with Alaric's sack of how was it that these ethnic Germans, these, these German auxiliary troops in the Roman Empire, how were they able to sack this city? Well, 
To understand that, and again, to understand what happens here as we move into the fifth century in the baptism of Clovis, we need to understand what was going on with the Roman army at the time. Right? And some of you be thinking, why are we focusing on the Roman army? It's supposed to be about church history. Well, the Roman army is extremely important to understand the history of the Roman Empire. Because as the army went, so went the empire. Right? The, em the army made emperors. Right? The, em the emperor, all emperor, the name emperor is from imperator, which meant the, the ch commander in chief of the army. Right? So the armies were the ones who said, this general is going to be the emperor, this general is going to be the emperor. Right? So they made and unmade the political structure, really, of the empire. They built the empire through roads. Wherever the army went on campaign, they would build roads, and that obviously increased the, the wealth, the commerce, the communication of the entire empire. So as, as long as the army was strong, the empire was strong. When the army became weak, then the army or the empire itself weakened. So we'll look at here just briefly what happens in the army that causes such this, this huge disruption to Western European society and the political structure. Well, in the early empire, the Roman army was comprised mostly of citizens. It was a citizen army. And service in the Roman army during the early empire was considered to be something very prestigious, right? Something that every citizen was supposed to give of himself to participate in the army. It was seen as a universal institution, right? And membership was, was for all citizens. And you should participate in the military, right? Was the idea in the early empire. And that early citizen army had a, had a strategy of kind of perimeter security, we would call it. So the legions were stationed up on the frontiers, right, up on the boundary of the empire to guard against those, those German barbarians who were trying to come across the frontier and enjoy the material benefits of the empire. But as the empire moves around, so at this early stage, there's about 300,000 men in the Roman Empire, in the Roman army, and they're servicing and protecting 60 million Romans. Right, so 300,000 men for about 60 million Romans. Now, when you move into the 3rd century and the early 4th century, things in the army begin to change. The army moves from being a citizen army to an army of professionals. Right, citizen army to an army of professionals. So you have individuals now who are, are purely joining the army for you know, a profession, not joining because there's a crisis and we need additional soldiers. I'm a citizen, so I'm going to respond. Rather, I'm, I join the army as my profession, and I, you know, I have a career 30 years or 30, 40 years in the army. The army then becomes more unpopular among the regular Roman people, among regular Roman citizens. Right? It's, the army is not seen as something prestigious, as something that one should do. Now it's just for a certain class of people within Roman society. As a result of that, recruitment became much more difficult. Right? In this time frame, the 3rd century and the early 4th century, you have most Roman citizens who have no military service whatsoever. Right? So it's not akin, in a certain sense, to our own day and age. Right? In a few decades earlier in American history, we could say a good number of people, men and individuals, had military experience or service. Right? Now that's not the case. Right? So it's, it's somewhat similar. But in this period of time, too, during the Roman Empire, during the, Roman, the history of the Roman Empire, you have a series of civil wars. Right, so now you have this purely professional armies that are fighting with each other to install their general as emperor. And what that does is it ends up pulling the legions down off of the frontier into the central heartland of the empire. So there's fighting now going on inside, and there's not as much coverage on the frontier. So what that allows to happen is the German tribes up on the frontier now begin to encroach steadily more and more upon Roman territory. Right? And so that is going to cause problems as we get later on to the 5th century. During this period of time, the strategy for the army was one of mobility. Right? So it became focused, the army became more focused on, on cavalry tactics, 
um, and large mobile force that could be you know, put wherever and moved wherever there was a serious crisis. What I mean, so how that's important is that the Roman infantry became less um, uh, of a focus in the Roman army, so therefore the infantry skills were not as good as they were in previous times. And why that's important is because the Germans who come across the frontier are more often than not overwhelmingly infantry troops, right? not cavalry. So when you have the clash between German armies and Roman armies, the Germans are going to start winning these battles because their infantry is superior in tactics and in uh, the military arts than the Romans. Right? Now when we get to the 5th century, things really rapidly change in the, in, the, in the Roman army to the point now that since you've had many of these German tribes come into the empire in exchange for military service, the Roman army in the 5th century now is primarily comprised in its essential parts of ethnic Germans. So by the 5th century, the Roman army is, for the most part, in its vital parts, ethnically German. So that's why you have somebody like Alaric, who's a Goth, ethnically, but by birth and, and by life a Roman, how he is now able to assemble a 30,000-man army, get upset that the emperor didn't give him his title, and march down to Rome and sack the city. Right? That's how that ends up happening. So why this is important is, again, those German soldiers, just like Alaric, want recognition. They want power. They want authority. They want titles as Romans. Right? There's this false notion we'll talk about as we get into it a little bit here about the, the collapse of the Roman Empire. There's this false notion that's presented in most history textbooks that how the Roman Empire fell was because of this great barbarian invasion. Right? All the Germans kind of, these hairy Germans, you know, poured across the border and sacked everything, and it was horrible, and it was destructive, and they just destroyed everything, and it, they ushered in the Dark Ages. Right? That's the prime, that's the prime historical uh, motif and narrative that we all know and we learn. Right? That's overwhelmingly historically false. Right? It's not what happened. All right? What you had, though, is you have Alaric and other Germans already inside the frontier, already inside the confines of the, of the empire. They're already Roman. Right? And what they want is they want to be recognized as Romans. And the, the, those who were you know, Roman for long periods of time, you know, who has ancestors you know, stretch all the way back to the empire, refused to give them that, and so then they rebelled. So what you have here is an internal revolt, but we'll get to that in a minute. So ultimately all this causes the collapse of the empire, but before that happens, we need to look at the, how the Western Roman Empire collapses and who's the last ruler of the empire. Well, there was this one individual by the name of General Orestes, and General Orestes, in the year 475, was appointed by the Emperor Julius Nepos to be the commander of the Roman army. Right, so um, General Orestes here is actually um, a, he's Roman. Uh, he's a, uh, he used to be a secretary to Attila the Hun, actually, so he has some experience with these German tribes. But he is then appointed commander of the Roman army. But he doesn't want to be just commander of the Roman army. He actually wants to be emperor. He's got this large army under his control, so just like others before him, he now wants to become emperor. So he marches his army to the capital city at the time, which was Ravenna. He marches his army to Ravenna, and there he deposes the emperor Nepos. Right? And this happens in 475. Now, when he deposed Nepos, he had to do that, but part of his army, he had a very large contingent of German mercenaries. And these German mercenaries agreed to go with him and depose the emperor on the condition that if they were successful, Orestes would give, him, would give them one-third of all the Italian territory, one-third of Italy, basically. That's what they wanted in exchange for their service. And Orestes said, yep, sure, give it to you, no problem. Come with me, let's get rid of the emperor. So they go, they get rid of the emperor. That's all done. Mercenaries come up to, to Orestes and say, all right, pay up. And he says, you know, on second thought, 
now that I'm emperor, I don't think so. He doesn't give them the, the land. Doesn't go well, right? They don't like that. They get upset with that, obviously. So what they decide to do, well, let me, let me backtrack for a minute there. So hold on to that thought. So before Orestes, before they, he, Orestes sells, tells this to the German mercenaries, he in, installs his son as the Western Roman emperor, right? So Orestes gets rid of Nepos, and then he decides to put his son on the throne because he can obviously control his son, and so he's in de facto the ruler, but he puts his son up instead. His son's name was Romulus, and he actually he named him Romulus Augustus, which he named him after Romulus, who was one of the mythical founders of the city of Rome, and then Augustus, who's the first Caesar. But he was a young boy. The sources differ. He's either anywhere from 12 years old or 16 years old or anywhere in between. So he's very, very young. So the Roman soldiers um, called him Augustulus, Romulus Augustulus. And Augustulus means little Augustus, little Caesar, because he was small. He was a little boy, right? So Orestes installs Romulus Augustus as his son as emperor. These German mercenaries say to Orestes, pay up. He refuses to do so. So the mercenaries, these German mercenaries, appoint a leader, a man by the name of Odoacker, to be their king. Odoacker takes the German mercenaries and some other troops, goes to Ravenna, kills General Orestes, then takes uh, his son, Romulus, and because he's a little boy, he doesn't kill him, he just gives him a pension and sends him off into the countryside in retirement. You go live over there, your, your time as emperor is done. And then Odoacker, instead of declaring himself emperor, makes himself king. So Odoacker now becomes king of the Romans. This is the first time in nearly a thousand years that Rome has a king. All right, so most historians date then this kind of change or collapse in, in the, the Western Roman Empire to this date of 476, when the last Roman, Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, is deposed and sent off into retirement. Right? So this ends the Roman Empire for all intents and purposes in the western part of the world. Remember that division of the empire that Diocletian did back in the uh, late third century, fourth century. So the Western Roman Empire, empire is no long. The Eastern Roman Empire will continue, uh, and they won't consider themselves the Eastern Roman Empire. They'll consider themselves the Roman Empire, refer to themselves as Romans. We sometimes call them Byzantines, um, but they never did. They would call themselves Roman. And so that will, list, that will exist all the way until the 15th century, until 1453, when the Ottoman Turks come and sack the city of Constantinople, and the empire is no more. All right? so, we can ask now, with all this background, we can ask ourselves now, why did this collapse of the Roman Empire happen? How was it that, again, in, in the end of the 5th century, in the year 476, you have this German mercenary proclaiming himself king, and now there are no more Roman emperors in the West, for all intents and purposes? Well, as I alluded to and mentioned to you earlier, this was not some kind of major Germanic invasion, right? It's usually portrayed um, in our history textbooks. This was rather an internal revolt of most of ethnic German troops who had already been welcomed into the confines of the empire in exchange for military service, who wanted to be recognized, were not, and so they took matters into their own hands. And then once they deposed the emperor, then local, or all the authority then, instead of having a central governing authority from Rome, all that political authority and power then passed down to the local area, to local governments. And those local governments are centered on those dioceses with Catholic bishops, but also with various secular rulers, overwhelmingly, who are Germanic chieftains. All right, so again, this, this, what happens here is this collapse of central governing authority from Rome, and all power devolves down to the local regions. And those local regions, spiritually speaking, and sometimes temporally, are controlled by the church, 
more often than not, those temporal smaller regions are controlled by these local Germanic chieftains. Right? And so we'll look at them, we'll look at some of these tribes here in a minute. Ultimately, why did this happen? Why did, this, why did this, all of this come about? What was it that brought about this change in the army, the Roman army? What was it that ended up bringing about the end and collapse of the Roman Empire in the West? Well, really it has to do with fatigue. It has to do with being tired. The empire had exhausted itself in its campaigns, exhausted itself in its lifestyle and its culture, and it was tired. One fantastic historian, a man by the name of Sir Kenneth Clark, who's an art historian who years ago published this series, produced this series for BBC called Civilization which if you've never seen it, I highly encourage you to look this up. Uh, you can probably get it through Netflix and stream it maybe even, or Amazon. But it's called Civilization by Sir Kenneth Clark. And it's, it's what he does is he goes through the history of Western Europe using art. And it's, it's filmed on location. He did this in the 60s. And so it was a huge deal at the time. Now we're like, okay, on location shooting, what's the big deal? But that was a big deal um, back in the 60s. It's fantastic. But he has this to say in his series Civilization about why Rome fell. He said, civilization requires confidence. Confidence in the society in which one lives, belief in its philosophy, belief in its laws, and confidence in one's own mental powers. Vigor, energy, vitality, all the great civilizations have a weight of energy behind them. So if one asks why the civilization of Greece and Rome collapsed, the real answer is that it was exhausted. Now, fast forward a few years into our own day and age, Benedict XVI, also writing, discussing about this whole period of time in history, echoed exactly what Sir Kenneth Clark said. He wrote, Benedict wrote this, in its final days, Rome still functioned as a great historical framework, but in practice, it was already subsisting on models that were destined to fail. Its vital energy had been depleted. Right? The energy of Rome had just been depleted. So it just it got tired in the West. And so you had this change in political structure, again, mandated by these local Germanic chieftains. So let's look at some of these major Germanic tribes that had all been welcomed into the confines of the, of the Roman Empire and then ultimately become the power and authority um, when Rome, the central governing authority in Rome collapses. So there's four major groups. The first one here we'll look at is the Goths. We've already mentioned the Goths a little bit through Alaric. Alaric himself, remember I said, was ethnically a Goth, although Roman by birth. The Goths come into the empire in the year 376, so 100 years before Odoacer declares himself king and gets rid of the last Western Roman emperor. They came across, they appealed to the emperor Valens to come across the uh, confines of the Roman Empire and across the, come across the Danube. They were trying to escape the Huns who were, who were attacking them. So they wanted to get into the empire so that the empire could protect them from the Huns. So Valens allowed them to come into the empire, again, in exchange for military service, which they granted. So 200,000 Goths cross the frontier in 376 and become um, a part of the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, the Roman commanders on the frontier treated these individuals with great contempt, um, so much so that they, they charged them exorbitant prices for food and for basic necessities of living. Um, we even have accounts of, of the Goths having to sell their children to the Romans as slaves in order to get enough money to buy dog's meat. So a very low, obviously, cut of meat now, this is the kind of situation that the Goths, unfortunately, were placed in by the local Roman commanders. So you can see how this isn't going to last very long, this relationship. The Goths get upset. They decide to revolt in the year 377. And then ultimately, in the year 378, they fight a huge battle against Emperor Valens and a very large Roman army called the Battle of Adrianople in 378. Now, the Goths, remember how I mentioned how the Romans, their infantry tactics were decreasing and the German ta infantry tactics were fairly you know, significant and high? Well, this all comes to head here in the Battle of Adrianople in 378, where the Goths destroy 
two-thirds of this Roman army. The body of, of Emperor Valens is never found, never discovered. He's killed in the battle, but they never find his body. Two-thirds of the, Roman, Empire, of the army, Roman army is completely wiped out by the Goths. It was a huge defeat. It was the single largest catastrophic defeat by a Roman army um, from a foreign enemy in over a century. It was significant, large, and it caused panic throughout the empire. You know, oh my gosh, the, you know, the barbarians are going to come and take Rome, they're going to do this, what's going on? It was a huge, huge problem. Right, so the Visigoths, very, or the Goths rather, very, very warrior-like people, strong people, right, tried to live within the confines of the empire, but then revolted when things were just not, uh, you know, were, were really detrimental to their existence. Ultimately, the Goths break off into two different major groups. One group's called the Visigoths. And the Visigoths ultimately migrate westward and they settle in modern-day Spain, as well as in parts of southern and western Gaul, or what is modern-day France. The second branch are known as the Ostrogoths, and they primarily come down and settle in Italy, modern-day Italy. All right, so you have these two major groups. So that's the Goths. The second group we'll look at is the Burgundians. The Burgundians, again, another ethnically German tribe. They're originally from Scandinavia. Some of them settled in what is modern-day Poland but others migrated into the Rhine or the Rhone Valley of France, right, which is the, where the modern region of Bur uh, Burgundy is in France today. They migrate there in the year 406. Well, in 474, what's interesting is their, their king receives the title general from the emperor Julius Nepos. Right? So this is before the collapse of the Roman Empire. You still have uh, Nepos ruling, ruling in Ravenna. In 474, he grants King Choperic, king of the Burgundians, the title general. So again, remember, all these barbarians are coming in. They want to be recognized as Romans. So he's given at least one title of, of general of the army. Now, Chilperic is interesting about him is that he had embraced Arianism. So Chilperic was an Arian, king of the Burgundians, was Arian. But he's married to a woman by the name of Cartena, and Cartena is Catholic. She embraces the Orthodox faith, faith of Nicaea. Right, so you have the king is, is Arian, his queen is Catholic, and they have a daughter whose name is Clotilda, and Clotilda follows after her mother's faith and is Catholic. So remember Clotilda, this name, because next week when we meet, we'll talk a lot more about Clotilda and her role in Clovis's baptism, because Clotilda ultimately will become the wife of Clovis, and it's really through her and her intercession that Clovis becomes baptized and he converts. Right? But we'll talk about that uh, in more detail next week. Right? So remember her name. She's a Burgundian. So now another group here of Germans uh, that has this impact in Western Europe are the Vandals. And the Vandals are originally from southern Scandinavia. They also cross the Rhine like the Burgundians do in the year 406. They eventually cross into the Iberian, or they cross the Pyrenees, go into the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day Spain, Portugal in 409. The Vandals are mostly famous for um, their destruction although that's somewhat of a misnomer. I mean, most historians will say that they, they, didn't, they weren't completely, they were no more destructive than any of the other German barbarians and German tribes, um, even though we, <laughs> which is still destructive, but no more so than any others. But their name, for the most part, is associated with, you know, wanton destruction, right? Vandalism is where we get that word from. So the Vandals, though, um, are most famous for their king, Genseric, who actually goes and uh, invades North Africa, in the year uh, 429, and so the Vandals take over in North Africa. They actually besiege the city of Hippo uh, when Augustine is there towards the end of his life. And then the Vandals also are famous because they go in the middle of the 5th century in 455, they sack the city of Rome. 
Uh, and I know there's a talk upcoming on St. Leo the Great, and so you'll hear, if you go to that talk, you'll hear more about, I'm sure, Jen Sarek and his sack of the city of, of um, Rome during the pontificate of Pope St. Leo the Great. So the last group we'll look at here, the, probably the most important group for our purposes, is the group known as the Franks. Now the Franks are originally from the area of the Baltic Sea coast. Um, and the, the Franks are an interesting group of people because they're not homogeneous. There's actually several different kinds of Franks. Um, it's almost akin to, if you're familiar with the Iroquois Confederacy, the Native Americans who lived in Quebec, in, in uh, modern-day Quebec and, and uh, modern-day upstate New York and that area of, of our country. Um, you know, the Iroquois were a group of Native Americans, but there were different tribes within the Confederacy. Same thing with the Franks. Right? Different kinds of Franks, but they all lived in this kind of loose confederation, loosely allied together. Sometimes they were hostile with one another. Some groups of Franks were friendly towards the Romans. Some groups of Franks, though, were hostile to Rome. The name Frank actually comes from an old Germanic word, which means savage. So it gives you a sense of where, you know, how the Franks were considered even among uh, the Germanic people. Now, one group, a group known as the Salian Franks, they come down and invade the Roman province of Gaul in the 5th century. And so they end up taking over most of northern Gaul here in the 5th century. Um, but, as I mentioned to you, some of, sometimes you know, these Franks were loyal to, or friendly to Rome, and sometimes they were hostile to Rome. Well, the Salian Franks were, at one point, in the middle part of the 5th century, uh, friendly to Rome, and they actually fought with the Romans against the invasion of Attila the Hun. So Attila the Hun invades Gaul in 451, and so the Franks join with the Romans to, feet, to beat them off. Because everybody recognized that we might not like the Franks, we might not like the Romans, but the Huns are worst of all. So let's get rid of the, let's make sure they don't come in and take over. So they fought with the Romans against Attila the Hun. And they, so what you have here in modern day, or in Gaul, modern day France, you had these two kind of major groups of people. In the northern area, you had these Franks, who are pagan. And then in the south, you have a group known as the Gallo-Romans. These are Roman people, people who lived in Gaul, in the Roman province of Gaul for centuries. And they're overwhelmingly Catholic. The Franks had absolutely no, you know, desire to be Christian. They had no, uh, they were practically indifferent, really, to the faith. Um, they were pagan through and through. And that's one example of their paganism is just found in their burial customs. They actually would decapitate the body, um, and then they would wrap the body in a uh, cloak and put the body in the ground facing east. And then with the body, they would bury food, pots, and you know, little supplies and things to take with them and use with them while they're in the afterlife, along with, obviously, if the man was a warrior, his weapons, a short sword and a throwing hatchet. Right? So these were overwhelmingly pagan people. So just like in many other instances you can think of in Scripture and in history where God takes the most unlikely person or un un most unlikely group of people and decides to use them for his glory and for his purposes, so too we have here with the Franks, right? A group of people that are you know, somewhat significant, but not, by no stretch of the imagination, overwhelmingly the, the best of these four groups of German tribes we've just looked at, nor the most powerful. But and, you know, the group that's, that's not you know, even Christian, right? the group that's not even heretically Christian, the group that's, uh, that's thoroughly pagan, God says, this is the people I'm going to use to bring about the conversion of Europe. Right, bring about the conversion of all the rest of these people. It's quite fascinating, right, how, how God works. As one historian wrote about the Franks, these unlikely pagans would become not only the champions of Catholicism, but the future saviors of classical civilization. And we'll talk about that more next week. Now, we know an awful lot about the Franks because of one individual, 
St. Gregory of Tours. St. Gregory of Tours who actually lived in the sixth century, so a little beyond the time that we're looking at um, uh, in this presentation. He wrote a book called The History of the Franks. So most of what we know about this whole period of time actually in European history, as well as what we know about the Franks themselves, comes from um, St. Gregory of Tours. All right, so we've looked at these four major uh, German, Germanic tribes, these four major groups of Germans. Um, all of them, except for the Franks, were Aryan. All of them had embraced Arianism, except for some people, some of the Burgundians, as we mentioned. But overwhelmingly, all were Aryan, again, except for the Franks, who were pagan. So how did these tribes, right, this is Western, um, Western Europe, how is it that Arianism, which was in the East for the most part, how did that come to reside here in the West, and how did these German tribes become Aryan? Well, it's through the efforts of this Aryan missionary by the name of Uphilus. Uphilus is known as this fourth century apostle of the Goths. He was an educated and brilliant man, born in the province of Dicea, which is parts of modern-day Romania and Serbia. He spent time in Constantinople as a young man. Um, he was ordained a bishop by Eusebius of Nicomedia, one of the uh, Arians that we talked about in the time of the Council of Nicaea. He ordains him a bishop, and then he's sent back to his homeland to mission to the Goths. So he missions to the Goths primarily by inventing Gothic scripts. So he invites, invents an alphabet for the Goths to be able to use. And then he actually translates the scriptures into that Gothic script. So now he has the scriptures he can use to help catechize and evangelize the Goths. And he does. So the Goths become overwhelmingly Aryan. And then as they grow and expand in influence, they then influence other German tribes, those others we just mentioned, except for the Franks, to become Aryan. So that's ultimately how Arianism comes from the East and gets centered in these German tribes and then how it spreads throughout all of Western Europe. So that leads us now to the topic of our, of our presentation, King Clovis. Right? Who is this individual, King Clovis, and why is his conversion and baptism so important in the history of the church and the history of Western civilization? Well, at the end of the 5th century, in 482, Clovis becomes king of the Salian Franks, so one group of the Franks, the ones we just talked about, who remember who had allied with the Romans to fight against Attila the Hun. He becomes king at the ripe old age of 15. Right, so he's a young boy, becomes king of this major Germanic tr uh, tribe. He was the son of Childeric I and Bessina, who was queen of Thuringia, another region here uh, in Western Europe of Germanic people. His name, Clovis, actually means noble warrior. And he, by all accounts, was a great and noble warrior. Ultimately, though, his name, uh, Clovis, will evolve into the name Louis. This is why most of the major French kings will take that name, Louis. They, come, they, come, they trace it all the way back to Clovis. Now, Clovis was a very interesting individual, St. Gregory of Tours tells us. He was, as I mentioned, a warrior. He fit his name of noble warrior, although he was an extremely ruthless individual. And there's one funny or interesting story, rather not funny, interesting story that St. Gregory t tells about Clovis. It gives you a sense of who this guy is at this time when he becomes king. So some soldiers, some of his Frankish soldiers, had pillaged some churches, and there was this large, beautiful vase that one of the soldiers had found. And so the bishop of that church was upset that these Franks had taken the vase, and so they sent a request to Clovis to get the vase back. So Clovis wanted to be friendly with the church. He had no problems with the church. He was indifferent to the church. He didn't want to have any problems with the bishop, so he agreed to give the vase back to uh, the bishop. 
But how he did this was, so the Frankish custom was that when you conquered a village or a church or anything, any of the booty or plunder that was taken was all piled together. And then every warrior who participated in the event, it was all distributed equally, right? even the king. Just because Clovis was king, he doesn't get a better share or a bigger share. Everybody gets a fair share. That's how the Franks worked. So he comes, Clovis does, to the group or to the area where they've deposited all the booty from their raids. And he says to this vase, he addresses the troops, points to the vase and says this, I put it to you, my lusty freebooters, that you should agree here and now to grant me that vase over and above my normal share. All right, so he's asking something pretty unique. He's like, not only do I want my share, but see this big, huge, beautiful vase? I want that, All right? Because he's going to give it to the bishop. He doesn't tell them that, but that's what he's going to do with it, right? So most of the soldiers say, oh, you know, he's our king, right? He's a noble warrior. Okay, fine, we'll give it to him. But there's one soldier who decides, no, not going to happen, which was to his detriment. He goes and runs up with his battle axe and smashes the vase into pieces. Now, So you can imagine Clovis is a little perturbed, shall we say, right, at that event. So what he does, though, is he picks up the pieces of the vase and he gives those to the bishop right, and says, I tried, but here's, here's the pieces of the vase, right? So and then he just kind of, you know, lets things go. Okay, fine, that's what he did. All right, we'll handle this. A year goes by, Clovis calls the same group of troops together to review them, right, to inspect them. So he's going down the line of all the troops. He comes to the guy who smashed the vase and he looks at him and he says this, no other man has equipment in such bad state as yours. Your javelin is in a shocking condition, and so are your sword and axe. So he takes the axe out of the soldier's hands, throws it on the ground. Right? You're disgusting. Your equipment is in horrible condition. So the man reaches down to pick up the axe, and while he does that, Clovis takes his battle axe, smashes his skull in. And he screams when he says this, that is what you did to my vase. So moral of the story, don't mess with Clovis. Right? He's got a little bad temper about a vase. Right? So he's an interesting guy. So with all of that, right, so here you have this individual, ruthless man, head of this, you know, pagan, large, you know, good-sized pagan tribe, um, you know, in the midst of this area of Roman Gaul, which, again, the people, for the most part, especially in southern Gaul, are Gallo-Romans, and so they're Catholic, but you have these pagans now, you know, pagan invaders in the north of, of Gaul. The bishops in the area, obviously, are very concerned. How, what are we going to do? How do we handle this pagan? How do we handle this, this warrior? How, how is this going to come about? You know, we need for this to be different. So one individual, one major bishop in Gaul at the time is named St. Remigius, or is known as St. Remy. St. Remy was the bishop of Reims, became bishop of Reims at the ripe old age of 22. Or you got very important positions when you were much younger um, back in the 5th century. But St. Remy is known as the Apostle of the Franks, and he focused on, he knew the Franks were here to stay, and he wanted, obviously, to bring about the conversion of the Franks. He wanted them to become Catholic, right? He saw that all the other tribes around Gaul were Aryan. The Franks are pagan. They're ripe for evangelization. If we can convert them, then just maybe the church has a chance of surviving and spreading, and we can get rid of these Aryans around us. So what he does is he sends a letter to King Clovis upon Clovis's uh, ascension as king. And he gives him advice in this letter on how to rule and how to rule well. So this is what he wrote to um, Clovis. Remy wrote, great news has reached us. You have just been placed at the head of the Frankish armies. None are surprised to see you become what your fathers were. What matters first of all is to respond to the designs of that providence that rewards your merit by raising you to the heights of honor. 
And this is the occasion for justifying the proverb, a work is crowned by its end. Take for counselors those whose choice does honor to your discernment. Be prudent, chaste, moderate, honor bishops, and do not disdain their advice. Right, very good. He wants to get the pagan on his side. Honor bishops. Do not disdain their advice. As long as you live on good terms with them, the bishops, the affairs of state will prosper. See how he's just subtly planting seeds? Your reign will be great and glorious as long as you get along with the church and with the bishops. Right? Very wise. Raise up the souls of your peoples. Relieve the widows. Feed the orphans. Later on, they will serve you. And thus, you will conquer the hearts of the very ones who fear you. Let justice be done both in your heart and by your lips. Let your praetorium be open to all, and let the humblest petition be heard there. You now possess the power that was your father's. Use it to deliver captives and console the oppressed. Remember that in your audiences, no one should see himself as a foreigner. To your pleasures and games, invite, if you like, young men of your own age to your entertainment, right? But only discuss business matters with your elders. It is thus that you will reign gloriously, right? So we can sum Remy's letter up. And if you listen to the church, if you, you know, don't disdain the bishops, um, if you get along well with them, your reign will prosper, right? Be, be, live virtuously, right? Take care of your people. Um, make sure that you listen to your elders, right? This is all very, very sage, wise advice, right? But again, you see how he's so subtle. He's not saying, hey, I want you to become Catholic. Right? He's not beating over the head. He's like, let's, let's get in and you know, give you some wise advice. You trust my counsel on that. Maybe we can take this and, and move it step by step, baby step by baby step, to hopefully one day your uh, conversion. Right? Very diplomatic, very calculating letter. Right? So we know that ultimately Clovis does receive uh, the sacrament of baptism, is converted, and he's done. That happens primarily through the prayers and actions of St. Remy, but even more so, through the actions of Clovis's beautiful wife, St. Clotilda. And so the story of Clotilda and how she's able to actually bring Clovis to baptism and how then the Franks go on to convert the neighboring German tribes from Arianism to the Catholic faith and how Europe then becomes solidly Catholic is the topic of our next talk next week. So thank you very much. How is it that the capital of the empire came to be at Ravenna? Yeah, so good question. So during the course of the, of when the empire, so backing up, so in the, when Constantine becomes Western Roman emperor, there's still two emperors. There's, there's Constantine and then Licinius. And then Licinius ends up deciding that he wants to be the sole emperor. So he uh, marches against Constantine. They have a, a fight. Um, ultimately, Constantine wins that battle, and then he becomes sole emperor. And when he becomes sole emperor, he decides that he wants to move the capital of the empire from Rome to um, Constantinople to, to a new city, which he calls after himself Constantinople. Right. So that's when the official governing government center moves from Rome to Constantinople. But then in the West, you still have, you know, this kind of as when Constantine leaves the scene, and you have his sons, and then other emperors come along. There's still kind of this nominal understanding of a Western emperor that kind of comes back into play from Diocletian. So this the capital moves from Rome to uh, Milan, and so it's in Milan for a period of time, and then in Ravenna as well. And that happens to do with whoever is the emperor. Most of them are no longer, because many of them are now these ethnic Germans, or they, they're um, more you know, northern Italian, so they decide that they want to have their capital in places outside of the city of Rome. So Rome is still kind of nominally considered almost, we would call it like the spiritual head of the, of the empire, 
So obviously a very important city in the empire, but not really the seat of political authority. The seat of political authority in the West was wherever the emperor happened to be. And most of them lived in Milan then and in um, Ravenna when we get to the fifth century. So that's what happens there. Um, one thing I have heard before yes. is the birth rate of the Italians and mm -hmm. the Romans had lowered a lot. And, you know, they started having smaller families and all that. And that would be part of, of the Germans coming into the... Yes. That's a, I haven't actually heard that myself. That, I mean, that's, that's possible. I never heard that, that the reason why the Romans were open to allowing the Germans to come into the empire was for population, but had more to do with the army. Particular. I mean, that really is the central reason. So, as I mentioned, the army went through these different stages, and Roman society began to change too. So, you had Romans who no longer wanted to give of themselves in the army. You didn't. You had Roman citizens who didn't want to become professional soldiers anymore, or at least not to the extent that was needed, and not in the past. So, because the military was undermanned, that's when you had these Germans coming in. So, but the linkage of like a low birth rate, I haven't actually seen or heard that, but possible. Professor, could you please uh, mention a few books of finite length that cover this uh, this period and this territory? A finite length. Okay. Well, um, that is hard. Um, so there's a, there's actually a very good book. I don't know if it's still in print though. Um, it's called The Barbarian West by John Wallace Hadrill. So Hadrill is his last name is H A D R I L L. Wallace hyphen Hadrill, H-A-D-R-I-L-L, -L, the Barbarian West, and it covers the year from 400, the years 400 to about 1,000, I think, um, or 9,900, something like that. That's a good, very short, kind of one-volume primer on what's going on in Western Europe at this time. He covers all the major tribes, you know, that we just talked about, the Vandals and the Franks, and even he goes into the Lombards, which come into the picture a little bit later. Um, that's a good work uh, in terms of a good Catholic work, which at least touches on this subject, not completely about this subject, but touches on it, is um, Dion Moxar has a book called Ten Dates Every Catholic Should Know. And so she has a chapter in that book on the baptism of Clovis. So that's a good work as well. And that's very, those are very short read, and that chapter is very small. Um, in terms of, you know, one short volume is kind of hard. I mean, obviously, I always recommend uh, Warren Carroll's History of Christendom. Um, and even there, in his second volume, The Building of Christendom, he has uh, one chapter uh, that covers this, this most of the major time period that we're talking about now. So that's, although it's a big book, it's like 800-some-odd pages, um, that chapter is small. So you could just at least read that one little chapter. But, but I would start with, with Wallace Hadrill's book if it's still in print. I don't know if it is. My, my edition is old. But. I'm getting a question from online from Robert. Uh, and he was wondering, how difficult was it for the various evangelical priests representing the Catholic Church to dislodge the Aryan heresy from the Germanic tribes. How, how did they manage that? Yeah, that was, um, how difficult was it? Well, it's hard. I mean, conversion takes a long period of time, especially when it's entrenched, um, which it had been in the case of, the, of, the bar, of the, these Germans, these Aryans. So, and Arianism itself was very pernicious, partly because Arianism is so, um, was very simple. It was a very kind of simple answer to the question, who is Jesus, right? It didn't require a whole lot of deep theological thought or understanding. You could just understand, oh, okay, Jesus is a creature, but he's the best creature. Okay, fine, I can get that, right? These Germanic minds, not necessarily schooled in, you know, Roman and Greek um, logic and, and uh, rhetoric and those kinds of things, would understand that a little bit easier. So it, it was difficult. I mean, it's over a number, of t a number of centuries, really, that you finally have the full conversion. I mean, the Franks convert, as we'll see, we'll talk about, and they become Catholic, and so they actually expand in great um, numbers, and as we'll talk about, too, in the next presentation, ultimately, 
the kind of recipient of Clovis's uh, conversion is Charlemagne. And Charlemagne will then create the, you know, the, the new Roman Empire in the West, what comes to be known as the Holy Roman Empire. And he'll, he'll still in the you know, 7th century, 8th century rather, be dealing with groups of Germans who are still pagan, like the Saxons uh, and things like that. So it's, it takes a long process to root out. Yeah. You're always told that the monasteries is what preserved our Western civilization thought and all that. Yep. Were the monasteries flourishing during the period you're covering tonight, and did the barbarians leave them alone if they were flourishing? Yeah, so that's a good question. So for the most part, I mean, you have, you know, St. Benedict, right, of Nursia, who is the father of Western monasticism. And so his form of monasticism begins to spread throughout Europe, but it, it really doesn't spread rapidly until the time of Charlemagne, really. I mean, it, it spreads before that, but Charlemagne is the one who really gives it this really kind of fresh impetus. And so Charlemagne we're talking about in the 8th century, late 8th century, 9th century. So it's really before this time, um, or after this time, rather. So during this time period we're looking at with Clovis, um, you would have, you know, shrines and churches and, you know, hermits and things like that, but monasticism as a whole was not overwhelmingly well established in the West. It's, it's a much later phenomenon. Um, but again, supported by Charlemagne, the inheritor of Clovis's Frankish kingdom. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.